Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture. It's Wall Builders, where we're talking about the hot topics of the day from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution coach and a former Texas legislator, here with David and Tim Barton. Tim Barton, national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. David Barton, he's the founder of Wall Builders and America's premier historian. You can learn more about all three of us at our website, wallbuilderslive.com. That's the radio site. And then over at wallbuilders.com, you can get all kinds of tools for yourself and your family and your church. In fact, pick up that biblical citizenship course, go through America's Godly Heritage, go through the um, American Heritage Series. I mean, there's so many available things, kids' books, you name it, even the Catechism on the Constitution. Uh, lots of great tools. Get that for yourself and your family. You will enjoy it. Check that out at wallbuilders.com. Okay, let's jump right back in. Yesterday, well, day before yesterday, Monday and Tuesday both, we were listening to David Barton speak at the Pro Family Legislators Conference, and today we get the final part of that program. Here's David at the Pro Family Legislators Conference change occurs slowly. Um, if you go and look specifically with the first great awakening, how long did the first great awakening last? 40 years. It was a 40 year revival. We often think if we have a revival, it's going to get fixed and it's going to be quick and it's going to be really nice to have people different that I work with. No, nope, it's a 40 year process. Take the second great awakening. Second great awakenings went from 1801 to 1878, 77 years. You could have been born in 1802, died in 1877, be 75 years old, you lived your whole life in a revival, and you had no clue that everything you experienced was in a revival. Revivals are slow. They take time because it takes a while for people to change their thinking, and then it takes a while to change their behavior, and then it takes a while for them to make that a regular part of what they do. So revivals, even the turn of the century revivals, either the urban renewal revivals in the 1880s through the 1910s, Deal Moody, Ira Sankey, these kind of folks, uh, that's, that's 30 years, even at that point in time. So revivals don't happen quickly. And so we keep looking for measurements that we can measure that we're in a revival. No, it's just little bitty degrees at a time. But again, I think we're in a revival and I think I can prove that. So revivals generally, they span decades. Now here's an interesting point about revivals. Most people didn't know they were in a revival. Ask Whitfield if he thought he was in a revival. No indication he thought he was in a revival. Uh, most of the time, revivals are identified as revivals by historians long after they're over. They look back and say, hey, let's call that the first great awakening. It's not what they called it back then. It's what we call it after it's over. So historically, people don't know they're in a revival until after it's over. And then the later generation looks back and said, wow, look at all the changes that happened then. Now, you ask Whitfield how much change he saw in his day. It, it wasn't all that much change because it happened so slowly. He wasn't noticing it. Matter of fact, I'll show you what happened with Whitfield a little later. So historically, revival is a process. It's not an event. We're not looking for a spot in time where things change. It's something that takes a period of time. It is a process. So the fourth thing about a revival is change occurs slowly. The fifth thing about a revival is you have to use strategic incrementalism. And that seems like a strange phrase, but I'm going to give you two scriptures on this. When the children of Israel were going into the promised land, this is what they've been waiting for for 400 years. We finally get our own land. We can have our own place. As they're going in, God told them something in Exodus 23, and then in Deuteronomy 7, Moses repeats it later. Now, the, the way this works is when the first generation was getting ready to go into the promised land, they weren't thinking right yet. God says, okay, let's just stop here. 
let's go do this for another 40 years. I'll get the young guys in and they'll do it right because you old guys are thinking crazy. And so that's where everybody over the age of 20 wipes out. And Moses is now told he's not allowed to go in the promised land. So the book of Deuteronomy is a six-week sermon. Deuteronomy is Moses stops him on the plains and said, okay, all you young guys, we, we were here 40 years ago and we didn't get it done. You're going to have to get it done. And so the book of Deuteronomy is Moses giving them the history of what happened and what's been going on for 40 years. He said, here's where we really screwed up 40 years ago. Here's where you've got to get it right. And so the book of Deuteronomy is the old man telling the next generation what you need to know to go in and take the promised land. And so they do, and there's some really interesting things in the way they end up taking the promised land. But nonetheless, two passages, what what God tells the older generation that they don't do, and then what what, uh, Moses tells the younger generation repeating what God said, here's the two passages. In Deuteronomy 7.22, Moses said, now here's the deal. Here's what God told us the first time. He says, the Lord your God will drive out the enemy from before you, little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once. Notice what God told his people about how you're going to do this. He says, I will drive them out before you, but it's only going to be little by little. You will not be allowed to do it all at once. Now, that's counterintuitive for what we hope a revival does. We hope we have an immediate change that all gets easy, things start going through, people agree with us, ain't the way it happens. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once. It's only going to be little by little, but I will dry them out. I, I will get it done, but this is how it's going to happen. The way he told it originally in Exodus 23 to the first generation that didn't do it this way, he says, I will not dry them out in a single year. Little by little, I will dry them out from for you. I will not. This is not going to happen fast. If you're looking for quick solutions, this is not the way it works. He says, I will dry them out little by little. And so that's the mentality you have to get. Okay. It's not going to be a fast process. If I want this measure passed, I'm going to figure on a 12-year plan here to get it passed. I may not be in here at the time it's done. And you're going to see a lot of legislators, I'm going to show you in a minute, whether they passed it on to subsequent legislators that they trained and they mentored. They didn't get to do what they wanted done, but they understood it's a process. Getting people to change and getting the right thing done often takes a long time, but that's part of what they did. So that's the fifth thing is strategic incrementalism. The sixth thing is transgenerational. Let me explain it this way. You go back to the children of Israel, and if you look in Judges 13, it's a bad time in their history. They're oppressed by the Philistines, and I mean they are not just under the thumb of the Philistines, they're under the heel of the Philistines. Philistines, they're being ravaged. The the rampage is through the country, really, really bad. And so the people, they cry out to God in, in the midst of this really tough oppression, And as they cry out to God, it's interesting, with all the bad stuff going on, we're told in Judges 13 that God heard their prayers and he sent an answer. Okay, folks, quick break. We'll be right back on Wallbovers. Hey, this is Tim Barton with Wall Builders. And as you've had the opportunity to listen to Wall Builders Live, you've probably heard the wealth of information about our nation, about our spiritual heritage, about the religious liberties, about all the things that makes America exceptional. And you might be thinking, as incredible as this information is, I wish there was a way that I could get one of the Wall Builders guys to come to my area and share with my group, whether it be a church, whether it be a Christian school or public school or some political event or activity. If you're interested in having a Wall Builder speaker come to your area, you can get on our website at www.wallbuilders.com and there's a tab for scheduling. And if you'll click on that tab, you'll notice there's a list of information from speakers' bios, 
to events that are already going on, and there's a section where you can request an event to bring this information about who we are, where we came from, our religious liberties and freedoms. Go to the Wall Builders website and bring a speaker to your area. Welcome back to Wall Builders. Thanks for staying with us. Let's jump right back in with David Barton. He sent an angel, and the angel came in Judges 13, 5. The angel comes to earth. He looks up a guy named Manoah. He says, Manoah, God has heard the prayer of this people, and he is going to send an answer. He's going to answer the prayer of his people. You're going to be delivered. Thank God, finally, deliverance. And then Manoah tells him how it's, and the, the angel tells Manoah how it's going to be done. He says, what's going to happen is your wife's going to get pregnant, and when that kid grows up, he's going to be the national deliverer. Time out. I got to wait 20 years for the answer to my prayer. I thought you said God's going to deliver us. Yeah, your wife's going to get pregnant. When that kid grows up, he'll be the national deliverer. What happens is God often pulls in a new generation to get something done. We pray our hearts out. He says, okay, I'm going to send you an answer, and here's the new generation. They'll get it done for you. Well, they don't get it done for you if you don't mentor them and, and disciple them and get them thinking right. And they're a new generation, when God's going to do something, new generation is always the number one target of the enemy. You've got to get them thinking as goofy as they can because they're, going to, they're the ones that God intended to be the solution. But, man, we keep putting them in schools that twist their minds and get them thinking wrong. And they, if you haven't seen uh, a month ago the LGBTQIA plus doing corporate training for woke corporations, they now point out that they have identified 150 different genders. You have lost your mind. You know, I'll take you out to the ranch. You look at my cattle. There's only two genders. We all know that. It's real simple. But we've, we've put the next generation, which is the answer to our prayers that we've been praying, in real risk. And so what happens is we have to understand that we've got to really watch the next generation because that's what God sends us to get stuff done. So in looking at that, when you look at the Great Awakening, remember the guys I mentioned earlier, Samuel Davies? He's the guy out in the western valleys of Virginia. When Whitfield came through there in, in 1750 and got the revival started, Samuel Davies kept it going for the next 19 years. And it's interesting that there was a kid that went to church faithfully with Samuel Davies and just sat at his feet and learned. And Samuel Davies poured into this kid. His mother, as they would go home after the services, say, now, what did you hear from Reverend Davies today? And then talk about it and all that. And the kid was a kid named Patrick Henry. He was just a country kid out in the sticks. Patrick Henry says, I became a great orator from Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies considered the greatest pulpit orator in American history. Patrick Henry is probably the greatest political orator we've ever had. And Patrick Henry says, I got it from Sam Davies. And so you find that Sam Davies raised a guy in the next generation out in the country. Who would have thought a country kid from out in the sticks of Virginia would have any impact? That's not a big mega church. No, that's a little bit. And it was Pole Green Church. It's a fun place to go to out in Virginia. You can still see Pole Green Church where it was and where Samuel Davies did his ministry. And he mentored one little kid there, and that kid turns out to be a huge national leader, huge impact in, in what happened in the American Revolution. Gilbert Tennant was the guy in Philadelphia. After the revival got started there, he's the local pastor that kept it going. And he mentors a kid, and this kid turns out to be a guy named Benjamin Rush. John Adams said, of all our 250 founding fathers, you have three most notable, George Washington, Ben Franklin, Benjamin Rush. 
This guy's unbelievable, the impact he had in America. We don't know him today. He is the greatest physician in American history, still called the father of American medicine to this day. We still use medical discoveries he found 200 years ago. He started five universities. He started academic education for women. He's called the father of public schools under the Constitution. He started the first abolition society. He ran the national abolition movement. He started the Sunday school movement in America. He started the first Bible society in America. He served in three different president administrations. He was the director of the U.S. Mint, the treasurer. Just, the guy did everything. I mean, it's just phenomenal what he did. And he was mentored in a little rural, not rural, it was a smaller backwoods area of Philadelphia. But he's the guy. And the same thing happened up in Boston, big city. Sam Cooper, once survival broke out there, he kept it going for another 10 years. And there was a kid that he spent a lot of time with, even took this kid on vacations with him. When, when Cooper would go on a trip, he'd take this young kid, and the young kid's a guy named John Quincy Adams. And John Quincy Adams had a huge impact as well. So they mentored the next generation. They took these kids under arm, and they just kept them with them and took them around and did everything they did and let them see what they did. This is where revival comes. It's through the next generation. So we bust our tails, but we're not going to have successful revival if we don't get it passed on the next generation and if we don't preserve them from the attacks the enemy will throw against them because the enemy knows like we know it's the next generation. And that's what God has always done with revival. So millennials, Gen Z's, they got to be a target for us. We got to find some and mentor them one-on-one kind of stuff. Just, just find one, get one on your staff that you can train, you know, do, do something to pour into these kids and help them think right, help them think biblically, help them see the perspective. They'll become the next leaders. John Quincy Adams mentioned what happened with Samuel Cooper. This guy, he got an early start. When the American Revolution starts at eight years old, he's got his musket out with the Massachusetts Minutemen training with the Minutemen at at the age of eight. Uh, He goes on and he becomes, at the age of 10, he becomes the secretary to to his father, who's the ambassador or the diplomat to France at 10. But at 14 years old, Congress appoints him to the court of Catherine the Great in Russia. They send him as a diplomatic uh, assistant to Russia. He becomes the official translator because at the age of 14, he can speak seven languages. So they send him to Russia to be the official translator for the American diplomat there, Francis Dana. Then when he's 16 years old, they put him in charge of helping arrange the peace treaty to end the American Revolution in Paris. So you got a 10-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 16-year-old doing this? Yep, absolutely. We trained people back then. And then you'll also find that in addition to that, he became a diplomat under George Washington. George Washington said he's the best foreign diplomat we have. Under John Adams, he's remained a diplomat. Under Thomas Jefferson, he became a U.S. senator. Under James Madison, he goes back to being a foreign diplomat. He's actually appointed and confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but turns it down. Uh, he becomes a secretary of state under James Monroe. Then he becomes the president of the United States, sixth president. After his presidency, he goes into the House of Representatives, where he spends the next 17 years in the House of Representatives. In the House of Representatives, he's the only president to go from presidency to the House. 17 years he spent fighting slavery. He is known as the hellhound of slavery. He hated slavery maybe more than anybody else at all. And he's an old crotchety man, and he's one of the very few. He's either the first or second president to have a picture made. Does he look like a guy you want to spend your afternoon with? He is not a people person. He's all about policy, all about getting stuff done. He's one of the most brilliant political strategists I've ever seen. He would ju- he loved to give the opposition a hard time, and he would lead up into what they thought was a trap, and he would just spring it on them and make them look really stupid. He, he just had a lot of fun playing political games, and he did it really well. So this guy, interestingly, he is one of the most famous men in America. 
You're in House of Representatives, and you used to be the president, and you ended the War of 1812, and you were appointed to the Supreme Court. And so all the freshmen that come in, they all want to get to know this guy because he's really famous. And so everybody kind of fawns over him, wants to hang around him. And as you can tell, he's not a people person. That's not what he does. He's just not people person. But it's interesting. There was a freshman that came in one year that, for whatever reason, he seemed to take some kind of attention on this guy. And this guy got in his shadow and started learning from him. And John Quincy Adams, this great anti-slavery leader, he starts doing all this stuff and it's not successful, but this kid watches him and learns. And it's interesting that this kid was with him only 14 months and then John Quincy Adams died in, in, in the uh, house chamber and was buried. And this kid, a young kid, young freshman, ends up being put on the funeral arrangement committee to arrange all the state funeral for John Quincy. I mean, he ends up being right there with John Quincy Adams and it's significant when you see what happened with John Quincy Adams. The kid that he had 14 months to mentor was Abraham Lincoln. This was the only session he had in Congress, was 14 months with the old man, John Quincy Adams. And it's interesting, if you look at what happened, John Quincy Adams put something into that next generation. He poured into this young guy, and it's significant that, you know, of course, Lincoln becomes the president of the United States, and as such, he does the Emancipation Proclamation, and slavery eventually ends. Historians say that the Emancipation Proclamation, he learned that from John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams showed him what that needed to be. And John Quincy Adams came up with a three-step plan to end slavery. John Quincy Adams could never get the House to agree with this plan. Abraham Lincoln did, and Abraham Lincoln just implements that three-step plan. So here's a kid that got mentored by the old man of the House, and this kid in the next generation ends the evil that people have wanted ended for generations, but it's this young generation kind of stuff. And so this is the end of the Second Great Awakening. Now, John Quincy Adams never got to see what he was working for his whole life, but he got to train the guy who did it, and that ends up helping the nation. So this is the part of the long-term thing where you've got to become transgenerational. And the final and seventh thing is, is revivals require a lot of hard work. I want to go back to Whitfield for a bit. Whitfield... Without his preaching, there's no United States. Founding fathers agree on that. People like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin talked about the impact of Whitfield's preaching on them, what it did in the first Congress. Without Whitfield, what he did, there, there's just no United States. Now, our folks, final break of the day. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Wall Builders. This is Tim Barton from Wall Builders with another moment from American history. In the early 1700s, the Reverend John Wise preached that all men were created equal, that taxation without representation was tyranny, and that God's preferred form of government was the consent of the governed, all of which is language recognizable in the Declaration of Independence. Why? Because in 1772, the Sons of Liberty, led by founders such as Sam Adams and John Hancock, reprinted and distributed the Reverend Wise's sermons. So four years later, much of the declaration reflected the language of those sermons by John Wise. In 1926, on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, President Calvin Coolidge affirmed, the thoughts in the declaration can very largely be traced back to what John Wise was saying. Few today know that the declaration was so strongly influenced by the Reverend John Wise. For more information on this and other stories, go to wallbuilders.com. Welcome back to Wobblers. We're going to get the conclusion of David Barton's presentation at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. Let's jump right back in. 
Interesting thing about Whitfield, he had a whole lot of opposition, and nearly all of his opposition came from the church. It did not come from the secular folks. If you read the criticisms of Whitfield, it's from preachers. It's not from secular guys. And his opposition was from the people that should have been his allies, and he gets his brains beat in. Do you know we have records of church pastors telling their congregations, telling their parishioners, when Whitfield comes, you guys go get up in a tree over him and pee on him and defecate on him while he's, while he's preaching. That's what the preachers are saying to do to this other preacher. And they told him to go get rocks and pelt him while he's preaching, get potatoes and throw at him, throw cabbages at him, throw rotten stuff. This is what the church is doing to a Christian guy? Expect opposition to come more from your own allies, people who should be your allies, than your opponents. That's a revival. Oh, boy, I can't wait for a revival. Well, I think we're there. You know, I think we're, we're shooting each other plenty enough now. So opposition comes from a religious community, and the church is often the last to get on board. You know, what happened was that revival lasted for those 40 years. About three-fourths of the way through it, the church gets on board and says, hey, this must be from God, and they, they end up taking credit for it. Look what we did. We had a great awakening. No, you didn't. You fought it for 30 years. You finally got on board in the last 10 years. It was Whitfield who did it, and the church generally in most revivals takes credit for the revival when it's nearly over, and that's how long it takes them to get on board. So don't expect great support when you're doing something really good for the Lord and you're doing all this spiritual stuff and you expect pastors to come have your back. doesn't usually happen in a revival. Usually pastors don't have your back in a revival. They should, but they don't. So they're the last to get on board. He did 18,000 sermons in 34 years. We talked about that earlier. He did them all on horseback. Now, what he was, he was a chaplain in Georgia. And being chaplain in Georgia, he got on his horse in Georgia, and he rode up to Maine. Now, Maine was the northern part of Massachusetts at the time. It was not his own state. It was part of Massachusetts. So he rides from Georgia to Maine, and he stops horseback. And he carried, by the way, a portable pulpit with him. He tied it on the back of his horse. And he would stop in town after town, put that pulpit up. He'd get up in it. He'd preach a sermon, go to the next town. So he rode on horseback from Georgia to Maine, preaching along the way. Then he turned around in Maine and rode back to Georgia, preaching along the way, take a different route. When he got to Georgia, he rode back to Maine, different route, preaching along the way. When he got to Maine, he rode back to Georgia, different route, preaching. He did seven trips from Georgia to Maine on horseback. Can you imagine how fun that was? You're out in all kinds of weather. You're out with all the dangers that go with highway robberies, et cetera, and just riding on. It's the same with Francis Asbury. Francis Asbury, the second Great Awakening, this dude rode 300,000 miles on horseback in America, just in America. 300,000 miles? You know how many years in horseback that is? It was not fun stuff. This, this was really, really hard work, all that they went through to do that. So 80% of Americans heard him because he was in that many communities in America. His preaching is what killed him. Literally, he ends up dying as a result. He's buried in 1770, preached the last two years of his life. After he would preach, he would go off to the side and cough up a bunch of blood and spit up his guts and just really wretch and then get on his horse, go to the next place and preach. It, it, it literally killed him. Ask him how much fun he had. Ask him how much fun it was to get defecated on by, by church people and get pounded by rocks. and But that wasn't the deal. This is what God had him doing, and he ends up saving the whole nation, literally. We don't have the United States without him, and it was not a lot of fun. 
But that's part of revival too. And so our mentality is what really allows revival to come. We have to get the right thinking done. And if we're looking for an easy ride, it's just not going to happen. Um, it, revival is characterized by much hard work. Benjamin Rush said it this way, who was, uh, again, a, a guy who was in the policy side of what was happening as a result of the revivals. He said, to do good is the business of life. He says, to enjoy rest is the happiness of heaven. He says, we pluck premature for forbidden fruit when we grasp at rest on this side of the grave. If you expect this to be fun and easy on this side, that's when we get there. Right here, what we have to do is work. That's what we do here. To do good, to work is the business of life. To rest is the business of heaven. We ain't in heaven yet. So while we're here, we got a lot of work to do. So requiring hard work, let me run back through this real quick. Revival, do we really want one? That's the question because it's, it's, it's a lot of hard work. Number one, takes individual action. Number two, a willingness to disciple others. Find somebody and mentor somebody. Disciple somebody else. Uh, practical applications of the Bible. Make the Bible relevant for every bit of policy that goes on. This is a process, not an event. It is going to take a while. We do it incrementally. Look for small gains. It's nice if you can get a big win, but look for little wins. Put little wins together to make a big win. Transgenerational, again, the mentoring aspect and lots of hard work. That's what revivals look like. Now, I do believe we're in one, and I think I see lots of evidence that we're there. Uh, I think there's a lot of attacks on our young people because this is a revival, and that's why they're targeted more than they would be. We, young people weren't targeted like that in the 40s or the 30s or the 20s. They're targeted like that now because they're the solution God has sent. So we really have to do what we can to protect that group and, and try to get their heads straightened out, et cetera. And a lot of that's going to be one-on-one because our school sure ain't doing it. And a lot of parents are not doing it now because they went through a bad education system where they don't even think, right, that's all right. We can do this. So don't worry about results. John Quincy Adams, in all the years he was in Congress, his motto was duty is ours, results are God's. He never got done the anti-slavery stuff he wanted to get do. Doesn't matter. He worked his tail off to make it happen, and a young guy he trained got it, got it done. So duty is ours, results are God's. Make that your motto. Just hang in there. Keep doing it. I think things will change and will turn but it's not going to be pretty or fun along the way. But that's why God chose you guys for this point in time. You could have been born any time. He had you born right now, put you right here for this spot, because that's what he needs to get this revival done in America. Okay, folks, you've been listening to David Barton speak at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. If you joined us today uh, for the first time, you can get the first two parts of this series at our website, wallbuilderslive.com, right there in the archive section. So it's a three-part series. It was one presentation at the Legislators' Conference, but it took us three programs to get it all in this week, and just great material for you to share with your friends and family as we kick off the new year this first week of January. So again, check all that out at wallbuilderslive.com. That was David Barton speaking at the Pro-Family Legislators' Conference. Also a great time as these legislative sessions are going to start up in the next few weeks to let your legislator know about the conference and encourage them to go later in 2023. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to All Builders. We stand under-